Just King Things is a podcast where we read the books of Stephen King in publication order. As these are largely horror novels, they often deal with complicated and disturbing topics. A list of content warnings is available in the episode description. Howdy, friends and neighbors. Welcome back to Just King Things, the show where we read and talk about the books of Stephen King in publication order. I'm Michael, and with me is my co-host, Cameron. Michael, I need to stop you here. I need everyone. Everyone bring the house lights up. Okay, okay, yeah. Okay, everybody, everybody out there, calm down. Keep calm. Lights are up. Keep Keep calm. The Russians have launched a space thing. Oh, no, not a space thing. It's called Sputnik. (gasps) Please, please pause while watching this film. Think about it. I will now field any questions that people have about this so-called Sputnik. Does Sputnik like me? No. Okay. Are there other questions about Sputnik? Does Sputnik have a boyfriend? Sputnik is taken. Okay. I feel I feel like this is a repeat of the previous question about Sputnik. And I don't appre- this this is a harrowing time for American society. Well, I know you I'm, want to get hey, back to hold watching. On now. Hold on. I have a question about this Sputnik. I believe in the in the book, it, oh, there are only children at this, but I, that's fine. I will accept I am this. a child. Okay. This uh, is a condition old, that I have. Old baby child. <laughs> uh, go ahead. Ignore my monocle. How do we make money off of it? The Russians are doing that for us. <laughs> and scene. Great. Great. Uh, we, we're bringing the childhood of Stephen King to life here. Yeah, that happened, old Steve. With some some improvisation. Yeah, no, I think that I I mean that was pretty accurate as far as what he wrote. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are big gaps in the story. We don't know exactly everything that happened. <laughs> in my head canon, <laughs> the little boy <laughs> with the gruff, like sort of weird British industrialist voice was there. Hmm. <laughs> Steve opens his eyes. You were all there, <laughs> British industrialist man. You were there. <laughs> Evil clown, and you were there. <laughs> Russians, well, Harlan you were there. <laughs> Harlan, you were there for a very long time. <laughs> I did a close reading of your entire book of short stories, Michael. We're we're talking about Dance Macabre. Yeah, we're talking about Dance Macabre, uh, the second book that Stephen King published in 1981. <sighs> when did he start using cocaine? Um, 79 or thereabouts. Yeah. Okay. Uh huh. Exactly. Exactly. It, uh-huh. <laughs> that seems right to me. And, you know, I'm not... I, I want to be clear here, right? Because it's going to come up for the next ooh, decade of books that we're reading. <laughs> I'm in no way making light of Stephen King's very real and central addiction to various substances. 
it is very clear that he has issues with addiction. I mean, he he says this all the time, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he's he's uh, constantly in recovery. He has relapsed a couple times in in some serious ways that we'll talk about, or at least one time, I guess, that we'll talk about. I'm not making light of that, but there is a an. I think I said this in the last episode, or maybe a couple episodes ago, right? It is fascinating to me how everyone in the early 1980s aligned to just support his cocaine use. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, no one mentions it. No one says anything about it. It's obvious he was on cocaine the whole time, and he's doing and producing things that um, certainly are prolific, right? Like, he's producing a lot of them, but uh, they are sometimes deeply destructive and bad. Mm-hmm. Um, like, bad for the world, <laughs> bad to exist. And uh, so when I bring it up, like, you know, cocaine products, it's not to be like... Ho, 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 Stephen King was on cocaine, because that's a serious thing. But more to point to, there are weirdnesses in the Stephen King oeuvre that only make sense through the lens of cocaine, and and only exist because Stephen King was doing so much cocaine, and no one was saying anything, no one was telling him no. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, exist as they are, I think, is maybe the way to put it, because I think there's a version... In case it's not clear, dear listener, there are things about this book that simply do not make sense unless you are like, oh, this man was doing cocaine. The The book does not maintain – this is a nonfiction book. Mm-hmm. You know, I think we've said that, but I want to say it again. But the book does not maintain a coherent argument from page to page. Mm-hmm. It, it is just going in a thousand different directions. And it, it is – it's like – he's like a captain ahab right like yeah he he is just doing things in pursuit of some goal that we do not understand yeah and it makes for a like a deeply incoherent and often extremely offensive like we're gonna talk about it but deeply offensive both both like personally morally and maybe socially too um because he's kind of plumbing the depths of whatever he believes and then i think you're right right it, they exist in the form that they do right mm-hmm. with what appears to be minimal editing um, that's the other thing i was going to say is like if we're looking for the point you you said in the past that at some point stephen king becomes uneditable and i think like this clearly marks that because yeah. this again as, if if stephen king were in my freshman composition class he would be failing spectacularly. Yes. Yes. Because this is like 400 in, uh, like, I think in my edition, it's, it's, it's pretty long with all the appendices. It's like, Oh, 420 pages. Um, <laughs> nice. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but like, it's, it's a lot of book and the, 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 Next to the last chapter becomes almost like a David Foster Wallace thing with like footnotes that are like spearing off of the main argument and lasting over multiple pages. Like it is incredible. Yes, it is incredible. Incredible in the way that like a giant ant attacking the town is incredible. Yes, yes. (laughs) Like incredible in the sense where it's just like I cannot imagine being an editor and having this past my desk and not like saying so many things but clearly those things aren't being said to to steve at this point yes he he is driving his own boat in in a way that is ungovernable um 
Well, so I, ha- I guess I have a question for you because because this has to do with the um, there's a bunch of four notes here. Mm-hmm. I did not. I very purposely did not read the four note to the 2010 edition that I have because I don't care <laughs> uh, about what Stephen King had to say say about this in 2010. But I did look at the four notes to the original edition. And I think the 1983 edition, which had some like light corrections through it, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, both of them feature drinking um, pretty heavily, which is, I think, an important part of Stephen King's life at that time. But, but um, somewhere in these four notes, it talks about how he wrote this book because he left, what, Doubleday? His publisher, Doubleday? Yes, yes. Doubleday was his first publisher. That's what he published. Um, Carrie through the stand on uh, and his editor there was a guy named Bill Thompson who ends up being the the spur for this book. So why did Stephen? I, I feel like this has to do with with uh, Stephen King's like you know rise to meteoric power, but I don't quite understand it, and I, I hope maybe you do. Uh, why does Stephen King leave Doubleday? Like, is it is it money? Is mm-hmm. it you know? Uh, meteoric fame yeah no no i'd say there's probably a little bit of money going on there or maybe a whole lot of money um but one of the things that uh king is very clear on in what he has written about this this changeover he goes from uh double day to viking um Mm -hmm. and the the switch happens right after uh the stand and king is on record as being very displeased with how double day printed the stand like they printed it to uh, by his estimation very cheaply um, and the hmm. because it's a big, uh, thick book, right, uh, <laughs> yes. it fell to pieces uh, and he did not uh, like that. So he sort of felt like, you know, Doubleday wasn't really, uh, uh, you know, letting him thrive in the way that he wanted to and not giving his projects kind of, I think, the the uh, respect that he felt that they deserved. Mm, so, so there's a little bit of like, um, uh, you, you know, I'm a rising star. Why am I not being supported? Uh, but also, wasn't the stand had to be edited because it was unprintable, literally, right? Yes, like physically unprintable. Yes, yeah, it, it was edited down because uh, they could not publish it in at the length that King turned in. <laughs> Maybe cut him some slack, Steve, on this one. <laughs> Jeez. Um, well, well. So the reason I ask about that is that you know this that all feels of a piece to me, right? Like. You know, change of publisher, obviously signing up for a larger contract, making more money, being involved, you know, nascently in the film industry. Um, uh, there's some interesting info I have about that. Give a little plug. You go to patreon.com slash range touch. This very moment when you're listening to this, you could be listening to our episode on Cat's Eye, Stephen King's um, <laughs> anthology film. Yeah. Um, that he made with, uh, you know, De Laurentiis in uh, the early 1980s. Uh, I listened to the commentary track for that. Got some interesting info about uh, all the De Laurentiis uh, productions that Stephen King made. So patreon.com slash range touch to check that out. But Steve is involved in the film industry at the time. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it all feels like this is all part of each other, right? Like his ability to, you know be like a rich guy Mm -hmm. and his ability to kind of speak from on high about whatever he wants to do. Mm -hmm. And then his ability to afford and use lots of cocaine and other drugs um, and have no one tell him no. Mm -hmm. Right. So all of those seem to be happening at the same time here in the, in the Steve King career. And so what comes out is this, this book, um, I don't know. How did how did this book come to be, Michael? Uh, so uh, Bill Thompson, who, who I mentioned, uh, King's editor at Doubleday, 
uh, he and King are uh, still friendly even after King leaves uh, for Viking, and uh, uh, Thompson himself actually leaves Doubleday and goes to another publisher. I believe it's called Everest House. Um, and uh, they're, you know, meeting up in New York City one day, having lunch or whatever, or having drinks after some other meeting. Basically, the point is, they're talking one day, and Bill Thompson says to, to Steve, uh, you know, you should write a nonfiction book about horror. Right. Just sort of because also, you know, this is sort of late 70s. Um, horror is kind of kicking off as as it's like we, we are seeing the birth of uh, the modern horror movement of which Stephen King is kind of the figurehead. Right. Kind of post uh, uh, The Exorcist, uh, post The Omen um, and, and uh, horror becomes this uh, specific force in, I think, like American popular culture. And so Bill Thompson is like, hey, you know, Steve, you should write a book about this uh, horror thing that, that's going on. And um, King is both into the idea and a little uh, put off by the idea, uh, at least partly, he says, because the 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 genre, the format, whatever you want to call it, is just so multifarious, so huge that he has no idea how to how to really approach it or even talk about it as a single thing or, or, you know, to, to talk about it in a way where he is like, not just talking about one narrow segment. Um, Thompson, I think comes up with the idea of saying, well, what if we just do the last 30 years, um, from like 1950 to 1980 and King, uh, likes that idea. Um, because basically it, it lines up with his life. Um, it, it's kind of like, you know, tracing, uh, the history of a genre by way of his own autobiography. Uh, and that's sort of what he starts doing. Uh, that's, that becomes kind of the plan for the book. Uh, the other thing that is sort of notable about this book is that it's not all kind of originally written. Um, a, a good portion of the chapters are, uh, reprints or expansions of essays that he's published previously. Um, so for instance, there's a chapter here where he talks about, uh, Frankenstein, Dracula, and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, uh, three Victorian kind of gothic horror novels. Um, and that essay or a version of that essay was was originally his introduction to a uh, omnibus edition of those three novels that was printed by New American Library, which was a paperback original publisher who was also publishing the Bachman books. Um, there's also a bit in a later, like there's a bit in a later chapter, uh, where he's talking about the British horror author, Ramsey Campbell. And that's, uh, taken from an essay that he wrote for a British horror magazine, I think called whispers or something. Um, in my edition, there's an afterword where he kind of points out like, here's, here's all of the places where I've published essays, uh, previously. Um, oh, the other thing is, uh, he repurposes parts of his introduction to night shift in this book as well. So a lot of this stuff mm -hmm. gets kind of reused. Uh, but one of the big kind of innovations, if we want to call it that, um, is in 1979, uh, King is the writer in residence at the university of Maine. And he teaches a course called, so, and this is getting ready to happen when he and Bill Thompson are having their talk. Uh, he's getting ready to teach a course called, I think, like Themes in Supernatural Literature or, or something like that. Uh, and so he does teach this course. He has his students read uh, these various uh, books and uh, his teaching notes, essentially, and his kind of like lecture notes uh, get worked into uh, and what I assume is the the penultimate chapter of this book called Horror Fiction that is also like the longest chapter. Um, and it's where he just like walks through all of these horror novels that he likes and talks about why he likes them. 
Yeah, you and I were talking about this, um, <clears throat> the kind of form of this book uh, a, a few days ago, and uh, I described it as, uh, you know, uh, Stephen King's YouTube channel, like mm-hmm. Stephen King's horror rant channel, because mm-hmm. it's just Stephen King's opinions, and I think the level of argument is about at the level of like a popular popular YouTube channel. I think you said something to the effect of it's Stephen King's like horror blog that he maintains. Mm-hmm. Um, but but it has that kind of vibe to it of like here here's here's what I think. Um, here's just enough historical research or like quotations from other sources to give it a veneer of research stuff. But that is certainly not the point. Um, you know he he is. Um, it, it's Stephen King's big op-ed about horror. Mm-hmm. Yeah, op-ed is, is the precise right way to describe what's happening here in terms of, like, just the, the type of material that you are getting. Mm-hmm. And, uh, like all op-eds, it's very revealing about its author. Uh-huh. Uh, with that in mind, uh, you want me to take a crack at the five-sentence summary? I can't believe you got this one. This is so easy. <laughs> I can't believe it. I can't believe I got to be like, oh, vampires, blah, blah, blah. And you get to be like, oh, Stephen King wrote a nonfiction book. <laughs> well, let's start. Stephen King has decided to write a nonfiction book about horror. Uh-huh. His sense of the genre is deeply conditioned by the circumstances of his life, particularly growing up in the 1950s United States. hmm Stephen King talks about a bunch of radio shows, TV shows, movies, and books that he likes, and also many that he does not like over the course of several long, rambling chapters that become increasingly digressive and nonlinear as the book goes on. (laughs) His premise... And his conclusion is that horror is an inherently conservative genre about punishing people who uh, don't, like, conform to social expectations. So, pause, right? This isn't part of the summary. But if you want a thesis for this book, that's it, right? I want to I make that clear. Yep. So, here, here we go. Final sentence. However, He seems to realize in the last chapter that this doesn't fit what he thinks are his own beliefs about his own politics and tries to walk it back uh, confusingly and somewhat unsuccessfully. This is an accurate five-sentence summary. (laughs) This book is wild. Uh, You know, as you said... Uh, any any uh, first year composition student would you could take an essay from this and turn it in to any class that's on like basic writing and you would do very poorly Mm -hmm. and but here's the thing Stephen King would say that's a problem with you Michael Mm -hmm. yeah the thing that I left out of the summary is uh, many many of the things we learn about Stephen King uh, one of which is that he is incredibly (laughs) anti-intellectual The man hates thinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, hates it mm-hmm. with a passion. Hates thinking. Hates graduate students. Hates professors. Hates every. Yeah, it, it is. It, it it starts as like a funny bit, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and it is a funny bit for Stephen King to be like, "Look, I'm a wildly popular horror writer, 
hey, hey, y'all, it's me, Stephen King. I'm very popular. <laughs> you know, it's the beginning of his, <laughs> um, uh, uh, like, TV show about Stephen King. How is there not a, like, Stephen King in high school TV show? <laughs> like a Riverdale, <laughs> but for Stephen King. Oh. <sighs> we'll do it. Mm-hmm. We'll write mm-hmm. it. Yeah, we'd be good at it. But anyway, so he says, like, hey, I'm Stephen King. Um, I'm the salt of the earth. Right, like I am. Stephen King has moved from being like the everyman believes X Y Z, which we've talked about several times and has shown up in commentary and things like that. In this book, Stephen King is saying, "I am the everyman. Mm-hmm. Like I am the universal measure of of uh, American experience from 1950 to 1980." Mm-hmm. He he absolutely is position, positioning himself that way. Yes, as as the and the amount of narcissism it takes to like do that is <laughs> bewildering. But narcissism. <laughs> We're gonna get into that. There's some weird. There, there are thoughts about narcissism in this book. <laughs> yes. But, but anyway. So at every turn, any time that he is about to do some analysis in this book, he has to bracket it or like introduce it by saying, "Hey, what I'm about to do some analysis, but I'm not like a graduate student or an academic who are assholes and idiots, mm-hmm. and they don't understand how anything works, and they, they, they." I'm the only person who understands how media operates, and critics, and academics, and graduate students. They they are su- they're Draculas, all of them. They're mm-hmm. sucking the life out of media culture, mm-hmm. and uh, ev- eventually it becomes a like, um, uh, you know, the guy is protesting too much here, mm-hmm. right? Like, there's some there's obviously a very weird relationship he has between like the very notion of graduate study and i think that probably has to do with like being in a you know working in an academic department uh when he's writing it i'm sure there's some weird stuff going on with that mm-hmm. um you know some some factionalism and i bet stephen king at i bet stephen king on cocaine teaching at a college and then trying to be stephen king around uh, academics in the 1970s and 1980s i bet that that led to some weird social interactions (laughs) but i don't know if that has to do with um academics being fundamentally unable to think about american media Mm -hmm. (laughs) i think that might be a little bit more related to the the specific uh qualities and circumstances that just laid out (sighs) yeah so, I mean, we, we get that. So Stephen King's thoughts on uh, academics. The other thing that we learn um, is that uh, Stephen King hates cinema. <laughs> like, he, he seems to have a strange, like, enmity for film as a form. Would you agree with that? Well, I don't... Or he sort of comes yeah. and goes. It's weird. He does come, yeah, he kind of waxes and wanes here about his relationship to it. He does think, he he is definitely, you know, we've all encountered this thought. We've all encountered someone on Twitter being like, hey, it's just a movie. Yeah. You know, it doesn't have politics to it. Mm-hmm. This is a, a book of analysis of, like, what horror does across the board. And at every turn, Stephen King is like, hey... It's just a movie. Mm-hmm. Don't think about it too hard, Buster. It doesn't have politics. And then he'll talk for 20 pages right. about how exactly it reflects or, t- or speaks to American politics at the time. But he, like, specifically, every time Roger Corman comes up, he's like, if you start talking to me, this is this is my main voice. Mm-hmm. You know, people can let me know. I've been working on it, yeah. obviously, over the course of the series. Good. My wife will right. be pleased. <laughs> She's good. All right. So, so here's where I've landed with it. She can tell me if I've got it right. This is Stephen King. Uh, this is me, you know, doing my impression. 
If you start telling me that Roger Corman is one of the greatest directors of all time, that he was making art on $30,000, shooting a film over two weeks, I'm going to call you an idiot. Um, you know, Roger Corman, if you're not familiar, is uh, certainly made a lot of movies very quickly. You know, that's kind of the Roger Corman mm-hmm. thing. Roger Corman is also responsible for creating or creating a, an environment under which a huge number of American film directors have come out of. Mm-hmm. You know, he he created this kind of production studio from the 70s through or maybe the 60s through the 80s, something like that, where they're churning out movies mm-hmm. just like constantly. But they're hugely impactful culturally because they're like cheap movies for teenagers to go watch, basically. Yep. And uh, they're like intensified film schools because you're having to make a movie in like six weeks or less. Mm-hmm. A full movie, right? So like Martin Scorsese worked with him. Um, I'm trying to think of... Uh, there, there's a thing called the Corman Film School that's quite literally, you know, it's like 25 American directors went through him. And so Roger Corman as like a standard of American cinema is just solidified, you know, in the year 2021, it's impossible to think the shape of American cinema without thinking Roger Corman mm-hmm. in some ways. And like, I guess maybe that's not as apparent in 1980, you know, or, or, uh, 1981 when this comes out, but it's very funny for him to be like, don't think about Roger Corman. Don't tell me this is art. When of all the figures that are mentioned in this book, it is perhaps Roger Corman, who is the most serious of all of them, um, uh, you know, on the other side of it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I want to stand up for Roger Corman and, uh, you know, I want to stand up against Stephen King's assertion that like films in particular, as you're saying, just aren't art, Mm -hmm. um, that they're kind of like workman, like, you know, I don't know. I I don't, I was going to say like a hamburger, but a hamburger is art, I think. Right. Like, yeah, you know, I, I don't know. There, there's a bit too glued together two by fours. There's a bit in a later chapter where he, uh, like and this is a direct quote uh this is him describing what films are he says quote movies are merely picture books that talk <laughs> and this is him trying to uh say that film critics who do exactly what he is telling uh, us not to do right which is to look at Roger Corman and be like oh here is how we can see like the art of cinema right in this thing like we can see the mechanisms by which this medium operates and so on and so forth um he is saying that those film critics they have a a, a kind of um inferiority complex because they really wish they were literary critics What is confusing about this is that earlier in the book, he has also said that literary critics are stupid because they think too hard about prose styles and how prose works. And that kills like the magic of the book. Right. If you if you diagram a sentence to show how it works, then you've killed it. Right. He he, he compares it to uh, killing a butterfly and like and putting it under glass. Yeah. So it's in, in the the that you made about Twitter, right, is really good because this is where you're going to find a bunch of people making this argument. The idea that analysis somehow uh, deprecates or kills art, right? That it kills enjoyment rather than facilitating it. Yes, and I just want to point out this is a podcast that's dedicated to doing the exact thing that Stephen King hates, which is delightful in some ways. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it seems like we're Stephen King and Stephen King a little bit here, which is fun. Um, you know, what? what is the most horrifying thing? Well, it's, it's the thing that you hate the most. Uh, you know, uh, I like fulfilling the prophecy in that way. Uh, but the other thing is that what's, what is also 
I'll use the word again, delightful to me, is that some of our best enjoyment, I would say, our most most wonderful enjoyment of Stephen King has been looking at the sentence level and the way that Stephen King writes a sentence. And let me remind you that Stephen King in this book reads sentences closely a million times. Mm -hmm. He's talking about style and writing over and over again. So I, you know, I think there's this kind of like, I I don't know. I, he, you can't make up his mind in some ways, I think of, you know, um, it's, it's worth reading and engaging with things, but don't do it too much, because if you do it too much, then you're going to lose something special. Mm-hmm. Um, but he can never kind of demonstrate what that specialness is, um, because that's that's wrong. That's fake. Right. right. Well, <laughs> it's like not... fundamentally, uh, like, it's one of those things where he knows that exists because he sees a, he sees an interpretation or a, a response that he doesn't like, and he's just like, oh, well, that's the fake thing. Right? That's the bad yeah. thing that yes. I... Right. <laughs> Yeah, yes. Um, Yeah, in many ways, like, Stephen King is doing a very good job in this book of modeling a way not to engage with media, Mm -hmm. which is like, uh, maybe you should just be open to thinking about the things that you engage with if you enjoy them a lot, because it's fun to think about things. And here's the, the greatest thing of all about engaging with media. You thinking about it does not change the object in any way. Mm -hmm. It still exists. Like, it's still running around doing whatever it wants to do (laughs) with millions of other people engaging with it, like, over human history, right? Like, there's no close reading of a sentence you could ever do to alter the stand, right? (laughs) Like, that's not how it works. It's not as if thinking about it it somehow, you know, impugns the object, right? right? I mean, I guess you could, I don't know, create... Uh, broad interpretations, hence my frustration with every frame of painting. <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, you can always correct that by doing your own close readings, right? Because the uh, the sentence is always there and anyone can engage with it however they want to. And the frame is always there. You can always engage with it however you want to. Um, so, you know, I just think, Steve, I, I mourn for the people who took this class with Stephen King. <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine? This is one of those, um, like... Uh, I'll do it. I'll mock this up. Or maybe you can help me because I feel like you're you're better at this kind of thing, Michael. But uh, an image of Stephen King and it's like got the text at the bottom, POV, you're in Stephen King's classroom <laughs> in 1979. He's telling you about the haunting of Hill House. <laughs> and the book is all about Eleanor, how Eleanor is a weakling. <laughs> like yes. that's the message of the haunting of Hill House. <laughs> Yes, yes. Does the monster win at the end? Who could know? Also, the haunting of Hill House is about telekinesis. Yep, yep. He he totally uh, cannibalizes Eleanor's backstory for Carrie. Yeah. Um, anyway, sorry, we're, we're getting a little bit off off the rails here just by talking about the book. This is all to say, right? Um, you know, if we're thirty two minutes in here, somewhere around there. If you're curious, right, what's going on with this book? We're going to talk about the individual chapters a little bit here. But if you're curious, right, like, is this a book that is not worth reading like Rage? No. Um, is this a book that is interesting and it, but infuriating to read? Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, no, there's, like, very interesting stuff here. Um, and I would say particularly in the, like, first half before it starts kind of breaking down. Um, 
it, it's sort of like the excesses like it's it's interesting how you can kind of like track it right sort of the the exponential increase of sort of these indulgences that king is making he'll like have a strange little digression and you're like oh that was weird that didn't seem to have much to what have much to do with what we were talking about but it was kind of interesting and i sort of see what he was getting at and those just become more and more frequent throughout the book until you get to that penultimate chapter where as i mentioned you have david foster wallace style uh footnotes stretching across multiple pages is this the chapter where he has the extremely long footnote about uh harlan ellison uh-huh. and gene roddenberry uh-huh. <laughs> that's actually pretty funny <laughs> I mean, and that's the other thing right is like they're a lot of the the digressions and stuff end up being just like stories like Stephen King telling you like shit that's happened to him or stuff that he's heard. Like, yeah, that there's interesting stuff in there. Sometimes the stories are really irritating, uh, but like uh, Stephen King is a storyteller. And I would say, especially again in the first half of this book, the thing that um, really strikes me about it is just uh, I, I think I've heard his prose style uh, be described condescendingly or sort of derisively as folksy. And I would say that is true. He is a folksy writer, uh, but I like that, right? I think he does it well. He writes uh, kind of like a guy who's just sort of talking with you, right? And in some ways, this is kind of like, you know, a conversation while you're both hanging out at a bar or something. And he's just like, you know, telling you this story about his uncle who used a dowsing rod or whatever, right? These little autobiographical snippets. Um and I, you know, I, I enjoy that, right? I enjoy sort of hearing uh, these strange little stories about growing up uh, narrated in that voice. I, I think it's it's nice, right? There's just also a lot of stuff in this book that is infuriating. <laughs> yeah, I think people are, you know, when Stephen King gets called a master storyteller, I think there's a little bit of eye rolling associated with that most of the time, right? Like, that's PR language mm-hmm. and like, you know, of all the people. But I think that's right. I do think that Stephen King is a master storyteller I, in the sense that I think he understands at some basic level. Um, it, it, well, actually, I think he intuits at a basic level how stories work mm-hmm. and how they can work and how stories like post 1950s work in particular. Mm-hmm. Um And what this book has demonstrated to me is I actually think he does not understand how they work. (laughs) Like he cannot replicate that for you, but he's, he's amazing at putting it together. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, I, I think that this book demonstrates in his like theory of fiction that he has no idea how it actually works. And when we get you on writing, what's going to be very interesting about that book, you know, spoilers for the like five years from now is that that book doesn't have very much advice about writing. Mm -hmm. No, that's mostly memoir. It's mostly a memoir. It's basically a book called uh, Stephen King tells you about some writing he did occasionally. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, uh, it it's not about you know. Basically, I think that book. It's the major amount of writing advice it has is uh, you should really refer to Shrunken White for most of your issues, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is not helpful in any way. <laughs> Um, well, Michael, what happens in, uh, let's talk briefly about these chapters. Uh, what, what stands out to you? There's 10 chapters in this book. We are obviously not going to game study, study buddies our way through the whole thing, but I imagine we both have one or two things to say about each chapter specifically. So we can give people some examples or some hooks or some things that are worth thinking about in this book. What do you got in chapter one? Well, chapter one, uh, is called October 4th, 1957 and an invitation to dance. Um, Two things here. You'll notice that that's a very strange title. Um, the I'll start with the latter part. Invitation to Dance. This book is called, uh, you know, Dance Macabre, uh, and it is uh, 
that, that the name is borrowed from this kind of uh, medieval figurative tradition of the dance of death. Um, and Stephen King has this kind of recurring thing, a sort of conceit throughout this book where he is talking to you as if the two of you are at a, at a, like a ballroom dance together, right? He's kind of like, Oh, the waltz is starting. Let us begin. Uh, and it's, I think it's sort of cool and effective, right? It could have been an interesting guiding metaphor for the entire book, except the book kind of just is constantly like splitting off and going in other directions. So this is just one weird figurative thread among many. Um, but then October 4th, 1957 is what we referenced with our little uh, uh, thing skit, I guess, at the beginning, uh, where Stephen King says the horror for him began on October 4th, 1957, when he was at a uh, uh, the showing of a science fiction kind of horror film uh, whose title I don't remember. Um, it's not yeah, the day the earth stood still, is it? It might be the day there. It's some. It's he talks about the day the earth stood still at the, in the same section. Right. So it, right. It's it, either it, that or Earth versus the Flying Saucers. Mm-hmm. Uh, at any at any rate, the the movie is is stopped. The lights come up. It's him, King, and a bunch of other like nineteen fifties kids. Right. This is this is a scene out of it. Right. Uh, yes. And, yeah. And, this. I mean, this is a scene. Uh, this is a primal scene uh-huh. <laughs> for Stephen King. Yeah. So the the manager of the theater comes out and says, you know, like I need to tell you, kids, uh, the Russians have just launched a satellite. And it's called Sputnik. And uh, King makes uh, sure that we know that he the, the guy pronounces it Sputnik. Sputnik. Mm-hmm. Uh, and everyone just kind of like sits there quietly, sort of letting letting that knowledge wash over them. And of course, uh, we we I guess I say this kind of generally, but I'm sure you have heard other kind of versions of this story before, right? I think this was a very kind of impactful thing if you were a, a, a young person in the United States at this time. Um, the idea that the you know Cold War anxieties, the Russians have put this satellite. What's this thing going to do? Uh, and Stephen King says this is when the horror began for him. Uh, the, a couple of fascinating things I want to pull out from this um, is that uh, it speaks to a point that you've been making throughout this entire series, Cameron, about how for Stephen King, horror and science fiction are essentially the same genre, right? They're different inflections on kind of the same thing. Um, yeah. And uh, I, I think that, you know, you can trace that right back to here for Stephen King. Yeah, like horror in in like post-1945 is in some way going to be about like what technology is doing or what technology can do or sort of like laws of nature and how they can be exploited, whatever. Uh, The other thing that is important, uh, and this is important for like the entire book, uh, is that for Stephen King, the very idea of horror and horror in the United States from 1950 to 1980 becomes uh, wrapped up in a uh, pervasive anxiety about American decline. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yes. And that shows up in a bunch of different ways uh-huh. here. Uh, in ways I don't think Stephen King is intending it to show up. You know, you, you never you never want to psychoanalyze too much, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, no, you, you don't want to be one of those people. You don't want to be one of those people and you don't want to uh, do it to Stephen King who hates it the most, right? We, we know that. Um, but but yeah, absolutely. There's something really weird going on here with the way that the examples are written, right? So Sputnik gets associated with uh, is like 
put into play here and then immediately associated with black music. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Did you see that? Um, yeah. And so that, that like the, this kind of racial opening up that's happening in the 1950s, I say opening up, Jim Crow is still around, right? This is pre, um, you know, uh, pre explosion of the civil rights movement that happens in the 1960s. But Stephen King sees something shaking out in American culture here where he associates um, kind of interracial musical traditions um, with Sputnik, and we know that Sputnik is horror here mm-hmm. for him, right? So that that Daisy Chain's not too long to do that. Um, it, the other thing I, I'll say here too is that Stephen King doesn't believe that science fiction exists. Basically, mm-hmm. um, what 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 happens here? And that, that that's partially what's so fascinating about this book is that it's it, it's always good to have your beliefs uh, confirmed <laughs> by someone, right? In the sense of it's always good for for Steve King. You know, this is maybe what I've recognized over the series. I have a hunch about Steve, and then sometimes he'll just straight up tell me that it's true. (laughs) And that always feels good. Um, But yeah, he just doesn't... He basically says that, you know, science fiction is often just positioning things in the world... Um, you know, it's what we would call estrangement in science fiction studies, right? Mm -hmm. You know, it's a a condition from the world that gets kind of placed into this science fictional context, and you have to do this kind of cognitive process of thinking, well, how would I react to that? And then when that estrangement kind of comes back to the real world, the lesson learned is, oh, that's how I will deal with that, or how I can develop a position about this real world thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, that's that's kind of core to uh, uh, contemporary to this being written in the 1970s and 1980s understanding of what science fiction, quote unquote, does. Right. Mm -hmm. Lots of people make this argument. I'm not inventing this in any way. Um, Well, so Stephen King just basically says, well, if that's the case, that's what horror is always doing. It's always replicating some condition of the world that we don't like and then kind of terrifying us or thrilling us with it. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, which is, uh, you know, why why he ends up calling and why why you're calling horror a conservative genre, mm-hmm. right? Because he calls it. This is on page page four that horror is about finding national phobic pressure points. Mm-hmm. That's the quote from him, and then kind of leaning on them. And that's often what science fiction is doing, too, especially kind of socially focused uh, science fiction or science fiction that can be read that way. And so for Stephen King, that just basically means that science fiction, the vast majority of science fiction, is just like a subdomain of horror. And horror is a subdomain of the fantastic, and it's like, you know, uh, wipe your hands off, we're ready to, to, to go, you know, to the beach now, right? Yep. We don't have to think about this anymore. I've solved genre. And, he solved genre, yeah, and so, but that is why I, you know, um, that's why science fiction shows up so often in Stephen King's work. But why he is not called a science fiction author is that in some way that his like PR as a person has just overwhelmed genre analysis, <laughs> where we, we keep being like he's the shockmeister, and we you know we're just ignoring the fact that all of his books are science fiction books. <laughs> Um, and that obviously comes from him. He just doesn't believe science fiction is like the the thing that controls the the, the genre here. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, extremely weird, but also very gratifying to be like, oh yeah, so that's why this keeps happening. Is <laughs> yeah. he just thinks these things are the same thing? Um, also important, we've talked about this a few times that uh, John Wyndham shows up here mm-hmm. too. Uh, Stephen King loves John Wyndham. He does. Boy, does he. <laughs> And we've talked about the fact, I think on this show, right, that uh, I'm pretty sure it was the show that John Wyndham is just like a nightmarishly conservative author. 
Yes, like a man whose idea, like he loves to write apocalypse stories because then he can imagine his ideal society where all of the like women who've been liberated by the 60s free love movement have no one to to like gravitate toward except for stuffy old British men. And then like, like dumb hippie boys, right, who are like liberating society, like uh, they're going to be shown up mm-hmm. because they are ineffective yep. in the face of like true horror, right? Like, and that's really funny too. You know, I guess I think of Wyndham as a horror writer, but I that that for me, I'm flipped from Stephen King, right? I he's a science fiction author first and foremost for me, and and there's horror that's a part of it, but like that's the same thing for like Thomas Dish, mm-hmm. and I would call him a science fiction writer. I wouldn't call him a horror writer. Yeah. Um, so it's really funny how like horror really does drive the whole apparatus for Stephen King and how that gets laid out here. Yeah. And then he, so in case you're expecting these chapters to kind of like build or like connect to one another, they really don't. Uh, they just kind of like, it's like a little, uh, uh, YouTube rant, right here. Here's, here's my thoughts today, folks like comment and subscribe. And then a couple days later, here's uh, chapter two, which is called tales of the hook. What is going on here, Cameron? Uh, well, so here's the thing. I took a bunch of notes, but then I didn't write down where the, the chapters begin and end. So I don't remember exactly how every chapter uh, goes. I think this is actually where uh, John Wyndham shows up, right? Mm, yes, maybe. The other thing to, to say about this book is that everything shows up everywhere. Yes, that's also part of the problem. He is constantly like pulling in the same references. Uh, I mean, there there's... There's a digression in this book about Theodore Dreiser, right? Who Who is not, if you don't know who Theodore Dreiser is, not a horror author. Uh, but but King gives us a lot of thoughts on Theodore Dreiser and how Theodore Dreiser works, right? So um, anyway, back to chapter two. <laughs> well, so, I mean, the general picture of this book is him trying to lay out, like, what is the tale of terror, mm-hmm. basically? And uh, basically kind of uh, doing some of the work that we were talking about earlier of... Uh, horror novels or horror stories, not novels, but horror stories work on an affective level Mm -hmm. and, uh, you have to recognize that that's happening. And so you can kind of lean on particular beliefs and fears that people have. And so this is where it's called tales of the hook because it, it goes into that story about, uh, you know, the man with the hook hand Mm -hmm. and how that works, how that story, you know, he reproduces the story as written and how basically says, well, if you pay attention to, um, you know, this kind of urban legend, um, it doesn't have, uh, uh, there's no characterization at all, mm-hmm. right? It doesn't really have plot, you know? I mean, things happen in order, but it is not uh, about, like, an incredibly well-articulated plot. It's about, like, this this figuration of, um, you know, someone does something, and it's the wrong move, and then someone dies, right? Mm-hmm. It's, like, all-body genre. And he says, well, if you really want to take the tale of terror seriously, then you have to think about that. You have to think about all of the things that we normally associate with, quote-unquote, good fiction. When we look at this genre, they don't really matter for an effective story to, to kind of grab you mm-hmm. um, and, and make it work for you. Mm-hmm. And this kind of, like, split within the genre is something that I think— that he'll return to constantly in kind of like different ways. This idea that uh, 
there is almost like a, a sort of like skeletal or basic like formation of the tale of terror uh, from which like horror fiction as a genre like grows out and becomes sort of more sophisticated. Uh, but there is uh, and, and, you know, the, the evolutionary valences here um, should be noted because I think for King, there is some of this thinking going on uh, that like, you know, as as this kind of like primal storytelling format, like percolates upward into the culture or something you get sort of more elaborate versions of it uh, that have things like plotting and characterization and so on mm -hmm. yeah and uh this is also the chapter where he kind of gives us the broadest strokes of history i mean he comes back to this over and over again but you know he's he basically says you know hey look at things like frankenstein uh and this actually might lead into the next chapter too mm -hmm. but you know he says like uh look at things like uh oh no no, no. this is actually the one where he's talking about uh, horror basically from the 30s uh, through the 50s, right? Mm -hmm. That kind of um, it's it's interesting. You know, I'm very curious about what Stephen King and maybe I should read this 2010 uh, uh, four note that I ignored on purpose. But you know, like the slasher genre, mm -hmm. it's very interesting. And he talks about Halloween here a little bit, but um, very briefly, he talks quite a, a bit about amount. Alien. That's probably the most contemporary yeah. film that he talks about the most. Yeah, he does. Uh, and, and basically says it's not a science fiction film. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, this is one of the places where he's like, people call it science fiction, but why would they bother? It's scary. <laughs> um, and uh, he does actually say a thing that I think is pretty interesting here. He says, uh, and this is pertinent for our other show, Game Study Study Buddies, right? Because this is an animating question for game studies. Um, he says on page 28, because uh, he, he's trying to figure out why, why do we engage with these stories? He says, why do people pay to go to a movie that will horrify them, mm -hmm. right? And so, like, game studies, you know, in my mind, I immediately go to this, you know, our other show, Game Study Study Buddies, if you want to hear us do something similar, but talking about, you know, thinking and, and philosophy and ideas about games. Um, but, you know, a formative question for game studies is why do people play things that are arbitrarily difficult, right? Mm -hmm. They're going to fail at, you know, this is kind of the Jesper Yule argument, yes. right? Uh, what is going on when we engage with something that is at its bottom going to give us bad affects, right? Mm -hmm. Where we, we have to like get through it. Everyone could do with reading a little bit of Spinoza here, by the way. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, Stephen King is interested in the same question, right? Why do we engage with the thing that hurts us? Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't come to a good answer about it. No, not particularly. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's... And it, it's also like this is an animating question of horror studies, right, as a genre, Unex you know, yeah. like very expectedly. But it's uh, to trace it even further back. This is the question of tragedy, right? This is the question that Aristotle in the Poetics asks about tragedy. Uh, why do we go to these plays that's just about horrible on, things happening to people? <laughs> All right. This sounds like a graduate uh -huh. student. It sounds like some sort of professor who's thinking too hard. Aristotle? Uh -huh. The Greeks? Mm -hmm. the, the, the only Greeks I know about are the ones at the toga party. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> woo, woo, Steve. Woo, Animal House. Uh, you, There's an alternate universe where Steve, where Stephen King is a guy who pumps his fist and yells his own name. <laughs> Steve King, Steve <laughs> King, Steve <laughs> King. Uh, he, we missed it by just a little bit, but he's def definitely the, the personality type. But yeah, absolutely, right? This is an animating question for anything that is is that feels bad in human existence, right? Right. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I guess it, it, when I say Stephen King has a bad answer, it's that he just doesn't bother answering the question. He, he gives, he gives like f maybe four or five answers, but never settles on one. One of them he gives is Aristotle's answer, which is like, we, we come to these sort of 
like representations of bad events for catharsis right and that's the mm-hmm. the uh yeah. the track that um uh the professor uh noel carroll picks up in his book uh uh oof, gosh what is it called it's called like paradoxes of the heart or something it's a very bad uh title but it's an aristotelian read of the horror genre that comes around maybe like five years after this book just to name drop think- <laughs> something else it's very funny i think uh i think it's actually called the philosophy of horror oh, that's it colon like paradoxes of the heart or something that's it yes yeah i also don't care for no carol's book um but uh oh this is also the part where he says one of the most offensive things i've ever read uh in a steve king book so far (laughs) um which is where he um he actively ruminates on whether fat people are human or not oh yeah that's where this happens right like so uh, like, you know, just to, uh, lay out exactly how this works, right? King is, is trying to think through the idea of the monster, right? The figure of the monster, what is a monster? And he's looking at all these kind of, uh, uh, 30s through 50s movies, like I was a teenage werewolf and he can look at that and he can be like, well, clearly like this type of movie is something that teenagers respond to. Um, because it's like targeted toward them, right? It is about them. And the whole thing is just kind of this like gross puberty metaphor, uh, and so he's like, he has arrived at this kind of idea that, you know, the monster is a, a sort of rhetorical or fictional figure by which we, uh, exaggerate some sort of quality that we as humans do not like in our lives or about ourselves or whatever. And he's trying to figure out what the boundaries are for this. And he decides like, oh, well, I'll just use like fat people as my test case. And, you know, I'm not talking about the person who, like, the woman who shops at Lane Bryant. I'm talking about the really, really horrible, disgusting people. He is, like, trying to figure out, like, speculating at what point in being a fat person do you stop being human? And he starts telling stories about, like, fat people that he's seen. Who It's, oh, it's bad. Yeah, and again, this feels like a, a the, 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 the thing here, right, is that on one level, this feels like normal Stephen King stuff and that it is, it is uh, salacious and like, you know, going for the gross out, quote unquote, for, you know, in his language, mm-hmm. right? In the sense of like, uh, he is positioning some people as inhuman and then just ruminating on it over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other thing is this feels like, as you were talking about at the beginning of the show, this is where Stephen King is uneditable, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I just cannot imagine... 99% of people getting away with writing this kind of actively dehumanizing thing, mm-hmm. right? Like, uh, it, it's the kind of thing of, like, just asking questions, mm-hmm. right? Um, yes, that, and, that is what he is doing. He is just asking questions about the humanity of fat people. Yes, exactly. And uh, it feels like there are a thousand different ways of of approaching, like, the question of what makes a human or whatever, right? Uh, you know, there are plenty of... There are plenty of science fiction objects, right, and and horror objects. In fact, ones that get, you know, huge amounts of space dedicated to them, right? He could just have easily had this exact conversation, you know, because I can imagine some, some listener or reader of this book saying, well, he's just asking questions to figure out what the limit of the human is. And this is a place where Stephen King is going to a place where people are undeniably really human, right? And then trying to position what would be the conditions under which they are not. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you know... Uh, if, if you if you live in the America post 1950, I mean, if you live in America ever, you live in a condition under which people are constantly being decided whether they are human or not, mm-hmm. whether they are deserving of dignity or not. That, that is perhaps embedded in the DNA of at least the United States. 
Um, but on the other hand, or, or not on the other hand, but but in addition to that, right? You can just stage this with Frankenstein, right? Frankenstein is literally a creature that is that is cobbled together from from human you parts. You mean the creature? Uh, no, 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 I mean Frankenstein oh, okay. from the film. Okay, <laughs> he's renamed for the film. Mm-hmm. Come on, <laughs> he's like, I shall call you Frankenstein. Exactly, uh, the creature. <laughs> but but right, there there are lots of fictional objects that actually literally stage this, where you don't have to just ask questions, quote unquote, to get there. All to say, mm-hmm. it's it's bad. It's bad stuff, um, and uh, you know, it sucks. Yeah. Uh, the next chapter is slightly better. It's called Tales of the Tarot. Uh, this is the one that's sort of the repurposed introduction from an omnibus edition of Frankenstein, Dracula, and uh, Jekyll and Hyde. Uh, and this is Stephen King trying to be a structuralist and invent his own structuralist system, um, sort of whole cloth. This was very influential for me when I was first reading this book when I was in like high school or something. Uh Actually, maybe like middle school. I don't, I don't remember exactly when I got my hands on, on my copy of this. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, middle school Michael, who was like structuralism. Oh, we're, we're, there's going to be a really good uh, story about one of my juvenile responses to this book when we get into the last chapter. Um, Great. Uh, specifically about Theodore Dreiser. Tells you what type of teenager I was. Uh, but anyway, uh, Stephen King. I'm Michael. I love Theodore Dreiser. <laughs> I'm 11. <laughs> He's an Indiana writer, Cameron, is the thing. <laughs> it's like I, I was reading Theodore Dreiser and Kurt Vonnegut. Um, anyway. Look, I, 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 uh, I, I'm, I, I am definitely impeachable in the same zone. I was reading a huge amount of Louis Grizzard <laughs> at the time. You know, like famous Southern uh, arch conservative humorist. Yeah. And just being like, I'm, I'm going to be, I'm going to have a mustache someday and I'm going to be funny. Uh-huh. People are going to love it. I actually went back and reread his first book recently. And I was like, this guy sucks. <laughs> this guy was bad. Like, like he, he was, I guess, a good writer, but God, his, his beliefs and opinions are awful. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, look, you know, so, but also very similar vibe too of like, a famous writer from Georgia. Let me get my hands on that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and uh, got a good helping of uh, the South will rise again with it too. Yeah. Uh, that definitely did not realize at the time. But anyway, I'm sorry. So uh, the tarot, <laughs> Dracula, Frankenstein, Jekyll and Hyde. Yeah. So what Stephen King does in this chapter, um, and I should I should also be clear that this is like not a good if 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 you are in this day and age determined to be a structuralist and in uh, build some sort of structuralist system for your literary criticism, this is not how you do it. Uh, but it's an interesting exercise nonetheless. He takes these three kind of classic uh, gothic novels and he tries to uh, reduce them all to archetypes that have uh, continued to have influence on horror stories, um, right, that are still kind of like circulating in, in that same genre space. And so he, he, he and he conceptualizes this as um, not so much a kind of hierarchy, right? But kind of, he calls them, uh, tarot cards, right? Things that you kind of like pull from a deck. And again, this is, this is sort of a neat conceit. I like this idea of like, yeah, no, this is just like a weird, like, uh, archive or collection of, of, uh, things, right? And you can just like have one pop out at any time. So for Frankenstein, uh, he, re- he sort of like creates this trope what, that he calls uh, the, the thing without a name, right? This is uh, the monster that shows up that is something other, right? Something outside of uh, 
our our normal categories of knowledge. Uh, so the, the 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 creature in Frankenstein, of course, is you know this weird assembled corpse homunculus thing. Uh, is it alive? Is it dead? Is it something that was dead that was returned to life? Is it something sort of like uh, new or original? Um, all of those kinds of questions. Um, then there is uh, the vampire, which is Dracula, um, and it's just straight up. It's Dracula. It's a vampire. It's like a, a, you know, he he reads Dracula pretty accurately in that uh, he thinks it's about, uh, you know, vampires are sexy, right? Or have some sort of like sexy component to them. Uh, and he mm-hmm. puts that in the context of a repressive uh, 19th century Victorian society. Uh, and then the third uh, version or the third tarot uh, card is the werewolf, which he aligns with uh, Jekyll and Hyde. Um, he he sort of makes this, I would say this is his biggest stretch, um, that uh, Jekyll and Hyde is like the instantiation of the contemporary werewolf story. And obviously you can kind of see where it comes from, right? This idea of a person who is in fact two people and like uh, the two different sides of the personality. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it's a stretch for the werewolf thing just because it's like, yeah, yeah, you're just like the werewolf is not really the term here, right? The thing that I think is actually like the fundamental yoking of of these concepts is that duality. It's not the, the werewolf just happens to be a further example of whatever Jekyll and Hyde is. Uh, and yeah, he, he very conveniently skips like the, uh, that, that, uh, Jekyll is a rationalist, uh-huh. he's a scientist, right? That science unleashes this thing. I, although he does talk about like the mad scientist kind of, kind of deal going on here, but, but yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And the only other thing, I think this is where he introduces, um, it might've come up before, but it's a, it's a sort of like binary that is going to come up again and again in these chapters. Uh, this division he is constantly making between what he calls um, the the Apollonian and the Dionysian uh, that he never actually really explains and he never signals where it comes from. And I don't know where he got it, but like, I'm just thinking like, did he pull this out of Nietzsche? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, this is the exact Nietzschean yeah. definition from The Birth of Tragedy. Right, okay. So, uh, you know what Nietzsche says in The Birth of Tragedy is that there's kind of like two modes of man. Uh, and one is the Apollonian, which is, uh, that is to say, you know, uh, uh, derived from the Greek god Apollo, um, dedicated to kind of like harmony, light, order, reason, uh, things having systems, things making sense, there being reasons for things happening. Um, uh, sort of like reserve, right? The ability to... Uh, Uh, forego something now in order to do something later uh and then there's the dionysian or from the 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 god of sort of revelry and madness dionysus dionysian right is is the thing that uh is the opposite of the apollonian it's it's like chaos and sort of just sort of wild song and and drinking and and consumption and expression and uh so the Vam- the, the vampire, for example, right, uh, Dracula is a Dionysian creature that comes into an Apollonian society. And Jekyll is a, a creature, right, a product of an Apollonian uh, re- oppressive or sort of restrictive repressed society. And he tries to expunge from himself his Dionysian elements. Um, this is good for what it's worth right in terms like it this is a good binary for letting you kind of make some off-the-cuff decisions um but stephen king leans on this so hard and never problematizes it in the ways that it can obviously be problematized 
Yeah, you know, not to uh, be Stephen King's mortal enemy here or nothing, but, uh, you know, when you do a little bit of reading of Nietzsche, mm-hmm. you know, say you get any copy of this book that is uh, has ever been printed in the United States, you might run into this little, I don't know, 40-page forenote to it where Nietzsche explains exactly why this is insufficient and disavows the whole system. Uh-huh. <laughs> and uh you know lays out a critique of why uh, it probably shouldn't ever be used and uh you know might be worth thinking i know that's too much research for steve you know that's i'm i'm uh putting nietzsche under glass you know i guess citation itself is something that is uh, just for graduate students mm-hmm. you know not crediting where your ideas come from but uh you know that's just something worth thinking about there mm-hmm. that uh the very person who invented this concept said it it didn't work. It was bad. <sighs> yeah. Is there is there anything else you wanted to point out in this chapter? Or um, in Tales from the Tarot, um, yeah, he does say one interesting thing, kind of right at the very beginning of this, uh, where he's kind of talking about capital A art and like what art does, mm-hmm. and he's not using this language. This is on page fifty seven. But he's, it's basically another moment where politics is coming up, right? And he says functionally that if you, or actually not even functionally, let me just quote it here. This is dead middle of my page 57. Mm-hmm. Um, In the place of the ideas that books and novels give us, the movies often substitute large helpings of gut emotion. To this, American movies have added a fierce sense of image, and the two together create a dazzling show. Take Clint Eastwood and Don Siegel's Dirty Harry, for instance. In terms of ideas, the film is an idiotic mishmash. In terms of image and emotion, the young kidnapped victim being pulled from the cistern at dawn, the bad guy terrorizing the busload of children, the granite face of Dirty Harry Callahan himself, the film is brilliant. Even the best of liberals walks out of a film like Dirty Harry or Peckinpah's Straw Dogs looking as if they have been chopped or clopped over the Mm -hmm. head or run over by a train. Um, And so he literally believes that um, that that film, that art in a broad sense, but, you know, the film is being called out here that, you know, it's what we might call the immersive fallacy, right? That it fully brings you into its world and you kind of can't help but absorb the uh, emotions or ideas or concepts in them, right? Even a good liberal gets sucked into the the nightmarish conservative imaginary of Dirty Harry, right, mm-hmm. For, in his imagination. Um, you know, it's interesting that literally at the moment that Stephen King is writing this, cultural studies is being developed and invented, which is a whole uh, analysis method for arguing exactly the opposite, that, mm-hmm. that viewers and readers don't just, you know... Um, passively absorb these messages that they have complicated relationships to them i want to point out that this is a book about someone's complicated relationship to the field Mm -hmm. you know of things that they absorb so either uh, people just uncritically absorb things and we're all rubes and stephen king is the world's greatest genius which i think is kind of happening here uh or stephen king is just wrong on this one um importantly too the next sentence is there are films of ideas of course ranging all the way from birth of a nation to annie hall Uh uh-huh not really interested in telling us what those ideas are, Steve, nope. are you? Nope. <laughs> um, oh, uh, one other but, thing I wanted uh, to mention in this chapter, there's a footnote uh, on the film Alien 
uh, where he calls it, he calls, you know, 1979's alien sexist because of the concluding scene where Sigourney Weaver, uh, strips down to like her underclothes when she's, you know, the final survivor and, uh, the, the, the xenomorph is stalking her through, uh, the ship. Um, he calls the film sexist for this reason. And I don't want to suggest that maybe there is not a reading to be made there of like the precise kind of, uh, uh, you know, structural dynamics for narrative cinema, uh, in popular culture where we have a woman who gets stripped down to essentially, you know, like a, a bra on her underwear at the end of the film. But how Stephen King critiques Alien for being sexist in this moment is that he says, I saw this scene and I immediately imagined all of the sexist things someone might say about it. And therefore the film is sexist. Which is an extremely interesting way to describe an object's characteristics by noting the effects that a sexist person might like events yeah <laughs> yeah it's not a critique of the male gaze right it's a critique of like people he could imagine it's literally stephen king inventing a guy yes right <laughs> and then getting mad about it or potentially uh <laughs> pretending he isn't the guy right <laughs> yes. uh it, he says it would enable the males in the audience of course to relax roll their eyes at each other and say either aloud or telepathically isn't that just like a woman uh, it's because she goes after the ship's cat too right Yep. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Right. So the very act of of uh, saving the cat mm-hmm. in you know uh, uh, screenwriter parlance uh, is one in which someone, not Steve King, but someone could say, "Isn't that just like a woman to save the cat?" Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, uh, uh, Steve, Steve's like uh, relationship with his imagined audience is really weird for someone who does not write for an, with an outline and seems to not care what anyone says about him ever. Yeah. Um, uh, until he does in a big way. But yeah, anyway, so that's uh, Tales of the Tarot. He's kind of like working through his theory of the genre. The next chapter is an annoying autobi- autobiographical pause. Quite literally. That's the name of the chapter. Yep. Uh, and this is this is an interesting chapter because uh, we get a couple of things that happen here. This is where I, me- I mentioned he has an uncle who uh, uses a dowsing rod. And this is where we get kind of that story. We get um, a lot of uh, discussion about like King's childhood in rural Maine, but also other rural places um, His after his father. Well, we also get the story of his father, right? His father leaving the family and kind of um, the aftermath of that. Uh, and this is maybe, weirdly enough, kind of my high point of the book, if only because... Yeah, it's great. Yeah, because like, again... He's such a good storyteller, and uh, there's something so interesting about, like, just hearing about what his life was like, because it was, I don't know, not, uh, things happened, right? Like, uh, uh, there's just all of this weird incident that happened in Stephen King's life, like the uncle with the dowsing rod, and then we get the story, the train story. You might wonder, why is there an autobiographical chapter suddenly? Um... Yes. The answer is Stephen King has decided there is going to be an autobiographical chapter because uh, a question I guess he is constantly being asked uh, or he sort of says that horror authors are always being asked is why do you write the things that you write? And and with this mm-hmm. sort of like uh, either overt or subtle uh, uh, assertion also that like what sort of complex do you have, right? What is psychologically wrong with you that makes you write all of these unpleasant things? 
Mm-hmm. I mean, I will be honest. I am constantly thinking, why did Stephen King write this? <laughs> but, but not because of some perceived trauma on his part. Yeah. Uh, um, so he, he, on the one hand, right, he kind of takes issue with this uh, in the sense that, you know, there's not like w- w- one specific thing that has happened that has like messed him up that makes him want to write horror stories. Uh, but on the other hand, here are some several here. Here are several things that happened to me that might have messed me up. Um, yeah, here are several things that happened to me, one of which is why I believe in telekinesis. Another called shot, by the way, mm-hmm. that uh, I have said repeatedly that I thought that Stephen King in the 70s believed in TK or telepathy or whatever, and he definitely says that here. Mm-hmm. He says that human beings can sense water <laughs> at least 100 feet underneath the ground. Mm-hmm. And so when you use a dowsing rod, there's nothing magical in it, but it is tapping into some innate human capability to sense water because uh, horses can sense water up to 12 miles away. Yeah. So why wouldn't humans be able to do it? There are some articles about this. I'm not going to cite them because mm-hmm. I'm Stephen King. I don't have to. Right. But uh, there are articles about it. So Stephen King 100% believes in, in telepathy and telekinesis, potentially, in the 1970s and early 1980s. Boom. By his own admission. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> no, no, no. That's fine. That's good, right? That's sort of like one part of this of this chapter. The other part is um, the story of the train. Uh, this is... So Stephen King uh, has a story that he tells that is a story that his mother told him because it happened sort of when he was young enough that he has no memory of it. And also, if it actually happened, he was clearly traumatized in a way that he would not have a memory of it. Uh, but mm-hmm. his mother says that one day um, little Stevie came home. Uh, I think he's probably like younger than 10 at this point. Um, but he came home. He, he was off playing with a friend and he came home uh, earlier than his mom was expecting. And his mom was, you know, up to being a mom doing mom stuff around the house. Uh, mm-hmm. And she was like, well, that's, you know, interesting. He's home earlier than he should be. And he came in and he was kind of uh, quiet and sort of distant in a way that seemed strange. But again, she's doing mom stuff. She doesn't have time to quite check in with him and figure out exactly what's going on. Maybe he's just tired. And he just like silently walks in and goes up to his room. And then later that day, uh, his mother receives a phone call from uh, a neighbor woman Um, the mother of the friend that uh, little Stevie was playing with. And it turns out that that boy was hit by a freight train uh, that afternoon. Um, And so he was either, you know, playing on the tracks or trying to cross them or something. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, King's mother's read of the situation is that uh, he was with his friend and saw his friend get uh, run down by a train and, like it put him into shock, but this shows up uh, uh, just to you know preview a Kingiverse thing. Uh, it's going to show up in in the body, which becomes mm-hmm. uh, uh, Stand by Me, right? The the sort of like adolescent uh, formative episode of of someone being hit by a train, um, and we're going to get a very important evil train later on uh in 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 the early 90s in the dark tower series there's a i totally didn't think about that oh yeah <laughs> yeah there is an important evil train yes <laughs> uh, but yeah in a murderous train who murders another train blame the mono mm-hmm. kills the other train mm-hmm. um, um and so yeah great stuff. like this is this is stephen king saying like well there's not like you know there's not a specific reason why i'm like this but if there are some reasons why i'm like this here they are <laughs> Uh, and then the, the sort of third big one is about his father. 
Um, and this is, you know, very sad, but uh, we've mentioned a couple times uh, his father leaves his family um, shortly after King is born. Uh, I think he, we get specific ages here. I think his his older brother is like six and I think King himself is like four. Mm -hmm. Um and then uh, the two boys and their mother kind of bounce around the country a little bit. You know, they live in the Midwest for a while and um, so on. Uh, and then they are back in Maine and living with or near uh, King's aunt and uncle. And he go he and his brother go into the old barn on the property and they find and like a bunch of stuff is being stored there. They go up into the hayloft. Uh, and they find a box of their dad's stuff that their mom, when, when, um, their father left, just like boxed it up and put it away so she didn't have to see it. Uh, and among this, uh, is some old Arkham House paperbacks, uh, HP Lovecraft collections, right? The Outsider and other stories. Uh, and mm -hmm. it turns out that, uh, uh, Donald King, who is, you know, that's the name of, of Steve's dad. Um, Steve King's dad is named Don King. Uh-huh. <laughs> it, that destroys me. Uh, but it, it turns out he he was a, a sort of horror and science fiction fan. Uh, and it, he King learns from his mother that his father tried to write horror stories and, mm -hmm. you know, tried to submit some of them to, to like, you know, weird tales or, or whatever. Pulps were still operating at the time, but he had no luck. Yeah, uh, Steve, so, you know, Stephen King spends this whole book disavowing that psychology or history have anything to do with, like, how you write fiction. And then, as you're saying, right, he writes this whole chapter that is basically saying the other thing. And I think he thinks he's being very clever here, or he's kind of positioning himself as being very cle clever. You know, he says in the the opening note, uh, this is a quote, quote, a novelist is a hidden creature. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So, you know, he very much has this fantasy of, like, you know, he's the puppeteer, right? He's, like, behind the scenes manipulating things, and he might give you a glimpse behind it occasionally, right? But even that is artificial, because he gets to set the way that he does that. You know, I think he's I think he is being meta and clever here in a way, but, uh, you know, I, it, it becomes, when, when he includes all this information, it becomes extremely not, like, clever and fun to read him being like, and yet this has nothing to do with what I write. Mm -hmm. That's not clever and fun to me. It's just annoying. Uh, to have him constantly, and this is an annoying autobiographical pause, and so maybe the annoyance is, <laughs> uh, you know, this is what I'm talking about. But it's annoying that for him to so clearly say, all right, so yeah, here were some really weird things that happened to me and traumatic things that happened to me in my youth that have had a big impact on me. Um, and then constantly protest and be like, no, 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 but they don't have anything to do with what I'm doing. This has nothing Just to do it, about Steve. how I'm constantly writing about bad father figures. Yes, <laughs> nothing at all to do with it. Just own up to it, Steve, right? Just be like, look, I obviously have some things going on here, right? Just quit, or just delete the sentences where you're like, this has nothing to do with what I write. Nothing at all, um, you know. But anyway, <laughs> that's all to say. Yeah. But that's what goes on here in this chapter. Um, he writes quite a bit about Lovecraft and his kind of adoption of those things here. Um, the next chapter is one I have nothing to say about. <laughs> it is about how cool it was to listen to horror shows on the radio. Yeah, it's called Radio and the Set of Reality. And again, I feel like this is indicative of like the book as a whole in some ways. This is the chapter about uh, horror media on the radio. And the vast majority of this chapter is him talking about films. <laughs> and how they're not radio. 
Yes, right. He's like, here's yeah. all the things you can do in film uh, that you can't do in radio. And that's like that's sort of the argument of this chapter. And then he sort of, you know, uh, finishes with being like, here are some uh, sort of horror uh, radio things that, you know, were successful and they were successful for this, that and the other reason. But like most of this chapter is him describing films. It's him trying to uh, invent media specific analysis on the fly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A, a, a huge amount of the rest of the, I would say that that the chapter four uh, creates a split between the beginning of the book and, and the back half of the book. Mm -hmm. And the back half of the book are all these medium-specific chapters that are basically, you know, and I don't think this is necessarily King's fault uh, in the sense that this is kind of the writing style, but they are like reading the books of enthusiast authors who are only interested in telling you about all the things they know about. Mm -hmm. Um, and w which was like a big part of the genre. Like if, you, if uh, something that people might not know in the year 2021 yeah. is that a, a huge amount of like being part of a genre, you know, a genre fandom, uh, was talking about stuff that you have seen because not everyone around the world could get it. Right. So like I might be able to order cool zines from the UK or from the other coast in 1975 but the chances of me seeing a movie that i hadn't seen very slim right mm -hmm. or getting access to a radio show that's not in my market very very slim uh, which is why actually at the end king uh, at the end of this radio chapter he like gives the exact record listing for for some of these shows so you can go and check them out if you can order them from a local store and so there, there's this whole strain of a, a enthusiast writing, some of which gets cited here, which is like big histories of like horror cinema. And it's just like, here's what the movie is. Here's what the plot is about. Here's why it's notable. And then we go on from there. They're, they're kind of encyclopedias in some ways. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, imagine the way that people engage with uh, Wikipedia today or their specific lore wikis for the video games that they like or TV tropes, right? Uh -huh. Like that mode of engagement has a long history in different fandoms, but they, it took the the shape of these, um, you know, in, in the micro, you know, zines or magazines or, um, you know, things like that. And in, in the macro, these encyclopedic volumes of like, here are all the, the science fiction stories that have been written with like a paragraph about each one of them. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the chapters five, six, seven, eight, and nine all have that vibe to them of like, here's the things that I really like. You might not know about them. Let me walk you through them with a little bit of like pizzazz to it. I think this is better written for the most part than that genre mm -hmm. tends to be. But it's really just lists of stuff. It's not particularly... Um, in-depth or critical in the way that we might want mm -hmm. uh the next chapter then is the modern american horror movie text and subtext can you believe he even admitted they have subtext uh yeah this is just a repeat of all the other arguments that are made already in the book mm -hmm. <laughs> like this is like if you wanted to read just the chapter about horror movies but every chapter is about horror movies um i don't know i don't think i have anything written down for this chapter i mean this is the one um, where he like talks about going to see the amityville horror and mm -hmm. I, I he's like oh this is a movie about a bad real estate deal <laughs> and that's why people like it and it's like yeah <laughs> yep that's what poltergeist is about too. yeah <laughs> um uh, but oh, I don't know. Th it's this is the chapter. Yeah, he also talks about uh, the Stepford Wives in, in pretty explicit detail here too, mm -hmm. and does a perfectly good um, 
you know, like analysis of what the Stepford Wives is about. Mm -hmm. I think it's a, a pretty illuminating that he thinks that the brunt of the satire in the Stepford Wives is on the women's movement. Yep. Yep. Because it's like, man, what? <laughs> like, and he, in that he he knows what's happening in the film or in in that film yes. in that story right he knows what that story is about but for some reason he thinks the the weight of the satire is meant to fall on the women's lib movement rather than the the friggin patriarchs who are like cyborgizing their wives yeah <laughs> yeah yeah it is a deeply uh, critical film of like post war engineering culture uh -huh. right like the tech the technocracy um it, but yeah anyway here's what i'll say it's probably better use of your time to read the stepford wives than it is to read stephen king's analysis of the stepford wives yeah, like stephen um, king is like hey the stepford wives is really sharply written and you know what he's right ira levin a great writer like very very precise <laughs> oh yeah absolutely uh yeah you could do if you wanted like an education on how to write you can just read every ira levin book mm -hmm. back to back uh and that'll like teach you how to write a novel uh easily um, I, I do think something that shows up that's interesting here is he kind of is talking about the 1960s and says basically that he doesn't think he could write a novel set in the 1960s because mm -hmm. um, it's just too, you know, kind of full of all of these kind of resonances for him living through it, the kind of political changes. Fascinating to see that that kind of goes away. You know, he mm -hmm. ends up writing a couple 1960s novels, but uh, it'll be interesting to think back on this when we get there and to see how his relationship to that changes. Um, a couple of interesting things actually that happens, some, some interesting sort of things that pop up in terms of texts that he's looking at. Uh, he looks at uh, the first quarter mass film. Oh. Yeah. It's the creeping unknown. So the quarter mass uh, a series of films are uh, a British uh, horror science fiction series, um, very influential and, and King references them in other works later. So uh, mm -hmm. we see some connections there. He also talks about uh, dual, uh, the Steven Spielberg film about a man uh, being pursued by a murderous trucker. Yes. In Joe Hill's most recent collection, mm -hmm. I think Full Throttle, he has a story written, co-written with Stephen King. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's just the plot of Duel. <laughs> it's just rewriting Duel. Well. Which is like maybe the fourth time Stephen King has rewritten the plot of Duel. <laughs> yeah. He, he got to do his own like weird uh, like Duel fanfic with Maximum Overdrive. Yes, it's like, what if there was no driver in Duel? Yeah. That's maximum overdrive. <laughs> uh, yeah, he's got to do it a whole bunch of times. Uh, one thing I didn't mention here uh, that is really interesting, sorry about the um, the film chapter here, is that he does a reading of De Palma's Carrie, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is really interesting. Yeah. And he says that he ultimately lands at the reason that Carrie is a popular film is that it is ultimately about wish fulfillment. Uh-huh. That everyone wishes that they could be like Carrie White and kill all the people in their high school mm -hmm. and get revenge on people. Well, and that's a that's sort of that is a, a sort of like consequence of how he reads those 1950s teen horror movies, right? That he is, I think he he consciously connects when he is writing Carrie with the I was a teenage werewolf and all that stuff, right? Where uh, like mm -hmm. being a teenage werewolf means that you can have puberty and you can like sort of fall into all of the bad and awkward parts of puberty specifically like for, you know, in, in, in the case of this film about a young man turning into a werewolf who then like starts stalking women right like his mm -hmm. reading there is that every teenage boy wants to be stalking women 
but he's not supposed to do that. So instead, we tell stories about teenage boys who, for reasons beyond their control, get to stalk women. Yes. Right. Uh, but it kind of throws like rage into weird relief, uh-huh. right? And like in his change of opinion about rage, right? That it's it's not just like a, a boy who can't take it anymore story, right? It's that at the core and at the heart, it is desirable to do that. And he doesn't let that go. You know, that was part of the, the guns essay, right? Mm-hmm. Is that he says, you know, part of the reason that rage works is there's a kernel of truth in it. And I just, you know, I... I don't know, Steve. Like, I think, you know, this could be, it might not be the annoying autobiographical pause moments that stick out the most to me of, like, analyzing the things that show up again in Stephen King's work over and over again. I There is a part of Stephen King who is deeply antisocial mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, finds humans as a group, especially teenagers, as... To, to be bad, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, that's really weird for someone who was a high school teacher for a number of years. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's yeah, it's weird. Uh, the next chapter is called the horror movie is junk food. Um, and this is just like this is this is where he's like, OK, I've talked about a bunch of horror movies I like. Here's a bunch of other horror movies that I kind of like, but they're just like schlock. Right. Last chapter was about Night of the Hunter. Uh, this chapter is going to be about the Deadly Mantis. Mm-hmm. I nothing to say about this. This is just him summarizing movies. Yep. Uh, then we get uh, uh, the next chapter, the glass teat, or this monster was brought to you by Gainsburgers. Uh, and then the glass teat is just literally the title of uh, a Harlan Ellison uh, uh, collection. And he just uh, about TV specifically. And then he's just like, yeah, I agree with him about uh, uh, TV. I'm going to explain his thoughts about TV. Yeah. Uh, famously cantankerous uh, Harlan Ellison, who hated everyone and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, oh, you know, maybe, you know, at the at the end of, we floated this several times, you know, who is the person after we're done with Stephen King <laughs> that we go through? You know, I think there are a couple, like, big, big things, you know, if we don't hate each other at the end of this. <laughs> Uh, you know, one of them. Hold on, is, hold, fan uh, cam of <laughs> of me of the end of the show. Fan cam of like you and me uh, set to uh, "No Children" by the Mountain Goats. <laughs> and, and we're just deeply unhappy. Uh-huh. We're you know, like this is a video podcast. By the end uh-huh. of it, uh, in in three D VR, mm-hmm. uh, and we refuse to be in the same like second life space <laughs> together. But uh, you know, uh, I think one person. I think who has been floated before, maybe on Twitter, is Le Guin, mm. right? You know, that's interesting. But someone who would be wild to go through, Harlan Ellison. Yeah. Who boy. They're like, absolutely. Yes, exactly. Who boy. <laughs> that's the same kind of uh, emotion I had when we talked about doing Stephen King. Uh-huh. And, you know, for Le Guin, I don't have a who boy. I go, mm-hmm. oh, okay, yeah, sure. For Ellison, I go, oh, I don't mm-hmm. know. So... But anyway, but yeah, uh, what, what is interesting to me about this chapter is that Stephen King um, talks a little bit about his politics here yeah. when he was in college. Uh-huh. What do you think about this? <sighs> so what is fascinating about Stephen King is uh, one of the things that comes up and, and we haven't talked about um other sort of precedents for this in this particular book, uh, but sort of like 
how Stephen King is both nostalgic for the student movement and also thinks the student movement was extremely stupid and a huge failure. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's just like, what the hell was going on with you? And I think part of this is also like, um, and this is why I actually think it is important to remember that these are like cocaine years. And I think you mentioned in um, the Firestarter episode, right? People who are like addicted to and heavily using substances are generally not feeling great about themselves in the world, right? I I think it's maybe safe to say that there's some like real dark depression uh, in Stephen King at this moment. Um, Yeah, absolutely. And it seems like he is looking back on the 60s and he is like, we blew it. And it's not like, oh, we blew it. We had such like this great, you know, 1968 movement. um, And then it sort of fell to pieces, right? In this book, he explicitly is like angry that we like, lost vietnam right yeah his national pride is injured right he he was not anti-war in the sense that like this isn't an unjust war um we're doing horrible things uh so on and so forth like he seems to be upset about vietnam because vietnam was lost yeah i that's exactly that was the question i wrote in my notes is was stephen king pro vietnam war and from what he writes here it seems like he was uh, that we should have just thrown more people into it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, because this is yeah, because this is the TV chapter. Because this is he talks about the uh, how uh, the Vietnam War was televised, and then uh, you know after um, uh, the U.S. pulls out, uh, and then he talks and he's like, well, and then because because we left Vietnam, right? Here's all the horrible things the communists did. Yes. Yeah, and that people starved and all of those things, right? right? Um. Yeah, I don't, it is, it, it's, I think, impossible, quite literally impossible, even through the power of dialectics, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, to square this with uh, The Long Walk. The the political, and not just like my reading of that as a war novel, that's whatever, but, uh, but the politics that are espoused about the relationship between humans and their government mm-hmm. in The Long Walk, I- impossible to square that with what's being said here. Mm-hmm. They are diametrically opposed opinions. Right. And that's that's why I sort of brought up the addiction angle, the depression angle, because it mm-hmm. almost feels like him just looking back and just like flipping his position and being like, no, this was horrible. And, and like sort of just like letting all that spleen vent. Right. Mm hmm. Yeah. And this is also related to, I mean, he ba- he says uh, functionally this is on two thirty seven in my book. He basically says that the JFK assassination killed TV, mm-hmm. uh, meaning that TV had a lot of possibility to it. And then once the JFK assassination was televised specifically, it created a condition under which television had to be kind of wiped clean of that, you know, divine violence in that way, right? Mm-hmm. In the Walter Benjamin sense, right? This kind of excessive from everywhere kind of moment of horrifying violence. Um, and so it had to be like, you know, uh, wiped clean for America to cleanse the palate that was, you know, you know, uh, to get the taste out of their mouth, basically, of the JFK assassination. And, you know, so I think I think it's that double whammy of, like, losing the Vietnam War or, you know, uh, the Vietnam War not going the way that American Empire wanted it to. Mm-hmm. And then the JFK assassination, that just breaks Steve in the 1960s when he's looking back on it, mm-hmm. right? Um, that the... And we've talked already, right, about how what a massive impact the JFK assassination had on Stephen King. And, you know, I guess this is part of what of the Kingiverse, right? Like part of Stephen King's fixations 
over the next X number of years is going to be, what is the long echo of the JFK assassination? And I think that's tied in with the stuff that we were just talking about earlier in the episode of, you know, the kind of fall of American empire Mm -hmm. and the fall of American culture. One of the the big moments for that is JFK being killed Mm -hmm. for him. Yeah. You know, in his imagination. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's the TV chapter. Um, I don't think, uh, there's much he he does sort of a long reading of the twilight zone although he actually thinks the twilight zone is not as good as the outer limits um yeah he and he also says uh he basically here's another little promo okay. patreon.com slash range touch for you right now he says he does a long reading here of richard matheson's prey which is about a tiny doll with a spear uh-huh. which is exactly what he does in cat's eye yeah the movie that we're going to be talking about in the bonus episode. But yeah, so that's kind of what's going on in these. And then he's talking about literature. Um, this is the chapter. The next chapter. <laughs> this is the one. Uh, he it, just, uh, you know, I want to I say here, because I feel like you have a lot to say on this chapter. Oh um, uh, he talks about haunted houses as dry batteries here, mm-hmm. going all the way back to what we talked about in The Shining. Mm-hmm. Um, so he is laying out in this chapter, if you're interested in it, his exact idea about what haunted houses are. Like all that analysis shows up in this chapter. So if you remember all the way back in The Shining, we talked a little bit about these ideas. Well, this is where Stephen King lays it out. If you're curious about investigating that yourself in chapter nine, horror fiction. Yeah. So just to describe some aspects of this chapter, um, for for the record, and this is, you know, speaking to my edition, which is a 1983 paperback, um, you know, like the first chapter, kind of like little introductory chapter, it's like maybe a dozen pages long or something like that. Um, The subsequent chapters are maybe somewhere, you know, at the longest, they're like maybe 35, 40 pages. Chapter nine, horror fiction, uh, for, for me, begins on page 251 and ends on page 386. Yeah, this is nearly a quarter of the book. In, in my printing. Um, and uh, like this, uh, I mean, you uh, off mic, right? Called this uh, a cocaine rant. And it is. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And this chapter is like uh, just Stephen King uh, walking you through books and authors that he thinks are cool, that he likes. Uh, he, he sort of just introduces a book talks about it uh sometimes he talks about sort of the, the the cultural response to it uh if it's you know big or notable um and he also talks a lot about ghosts here uh, a lot about the ghost story uh because that was a, a that was a tarot card that he sort of teased before right we had the thing without a name the vampire the werewolf and he's like there's also the ghost but the ghost is kind of like too nebulous to really like pin down into a, a formal category so i'll talk about that later um uh he talks about you know like shirley jackson's the haunting of hill house uh, and he reads that sort of in parallel uh, with a book um, by Ann River Siddons called uh, The House Next Door. Um, I mean, I could, I could, as you said, Cameron, I could say so much about this chapter and just like all of the things that Stephen King is reading and kind of the relationships that he's <laughs> he's uh, uh, making between them. The other author who comes in here who's very important actually is Peter Straub, Uh who uh, has written a couple of kind of horror novels by the point that King is talking about them. Um, but the, the big one that he talks about is Straub's ghost story, uh, which 
talking about bonus episodes, got turned into a movie in the mid 80s. And as I mentioned in the bonus episode on Sleepwalkers, uh, it starred Alice Krieg. Uh, who was also in Sleepwalkers. Mm. So the, the, the that uh, actor is, is sort of relevant in, in all these cases. But, um, I mean, I, I how, how do we want to talk about this? Because he also talks about Invasion of the Body Snatchers, and then there's a digression there where he talks about how he went to a Black Panther meeting, and then, like... Let's talk about that. Yeah. I, so I, I feel like, you know, this is literally just a, like you said, it is just a rant about some novel Stephen King really likes. Mm-hmm. You know, it made me want to read Ghost Story. I've never read Peter Straub's Ghost Story. Seems pretty cool. Seems like a cool book. But, you know, these are, this is not an analysis in by any stretch of the imagination. This is just Stephen King talking about some books. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if there's things that stick out to you particularly, you know, we could talk about them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I wrote some very few notes, but for the most part, you know, this is, if you are a horror genre fan, it might be very interesting to you to know what Stephen King thinks of these kind of like heavy hitters of the genre. Um, but if you're not, then it probably doesn't matter too much. But a thing that I think is important for understanding Stephen King is the story about the Black Panthers he tells. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess so. We'll we'll get to that because uh, I want to, I guess, put that in the context of just how weird it is where it shows up. So the first mm-hmm. like several bits of this chapter is him talking about various ghost stories, right? Working through Hill House, working through... Um, uh, the house next door uh, and and Straub's ghost story. And also I uh, state this clearly. The reason Straub is important is that he and King are going to co-write a book in a couple of years. They co-write the talisman. Um, so they're mm-hmm. big fans of each other and they get along well. Um, but uh, the the sort of way that Stephen King is working through the figure of the ghost is by uh, saying that the ghost is emblematic of narcissism in people. Uh, that like whenever a, a ghost sh- and what he's doing right is sort of mistaking like how a ghost works uh, in in kind of a piece of fiction for I don't know some weird again kind of like structuralist conceit. Uh, I mm-hmm. talked about this in the Shining episode. Um, in haunted house stories, people uh, with like particular weaknesses in their constitutions or their psychologies go into a house uh, that has some sort of malevolent entity and somehow that malevolent entity can use those weaknesses in those individuals as levers to manipulate them psychologically and cause them to do bad things, right? That's Mm -hmm. The Shining, right? That's what The Shining is about. Um, And uh, Steve, uh, based on an article uh, on Shirley Jackson's novel The Sundial, which he does not read here, picks up this idea that the uh, quote-unquote New American Gothic is primarily about uh, a, a culture of narcissism uh, in America post, like, 1945, post-1950. Uh, and then, uh, I don't know, then we just stop talking about ghosts? <laughs> Uh, like he, he walks through this kind of whole, uh, uh, elaborate thing about, you know, ghosts and narcissism and like how culture has changed, right? Narcissism is now the defining feature of our culture. And then it turns out there are still 80 pages left in this chapter. So now we're going to talk about invasion of the body snatchers, which is, uh, a story. Can you believe it? Just a story without politics, could be anything. It could be about literally anything, is what he says. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, uh, but like the the guy who wrote it, uh, Jack Finney, said, "Well, it didn't have any meaning when I wrote it." So anyone who's telling you that this is about communism or McCarthyism is just full of it. And Stephen King is like, "Yep, that's right." 
works cannot have meanings that the author didn't intend. <laughs> or, or if they do, right, you gotta you gotta hold it all in your head at one time, mm-hmm. right? In the sense that, like, um, you have to be he his demand is impossible. You have to be a perfect historicist. You have to be telepathic. And you have to be able to read the thing in context and not take it too seriously, mm-hmm. right? Like, uh, like, can you imagine Stephen King trying to talk about anything that existed like more than a hundred years ago in this framework of like, I guess I just need to know exactly what Chaucer was thinking at every moment of writing Canterbury Tales, mm-hmm. which is really weird because you get a sense that Stephen King does not want us to do this to him, and yet it is a, a demand that we do for everyone else. Mm-hmm. So it, it, this is incoherent. You know what we what I said at the beginning is very serious it's not i didn't say that because i don't like the book i say it because it is literally impossible to follow the line of argument because it doubles around on itself multiple times but the the maneuver that happens here right as you're talking about with invasion of the body snatchers is that reading invasion of the body snatchers gets him to a place where he begins to reminisce on a moment in 1968 he has a junior in college and some members of the black panther party from boston came to his college to talk in as like a public lecture series. And they basically explained the military industrial complex to, to these people, right? Mm-hmm. They're like, look, there's a, a big organization of people who run the country, um, who are from a very small number of institutions and, uh, they are all in cahoots in order to create conditions that make life unlivable for both us, you know, and us being here, the the Black Panther Party and the, and the constituency that they're speaking to, but also all of you, right? Mm-hmm. Young radical students, things like that. And so you should be deeply paranoid about that, and you should think about resisting it. And Stephen King just cannot accept that there might be a structure of power. Stephen King cannot accept that something like structural racism exists, Right. Mm -hmm. Because for him, he reads everything they're saying as conspiratorial. Right. And he's like all of these people. Yes. Yes. Stephen King. I, I, you know, if this were 2021, Stephen King, we would have a thousand people who took footage of this on cell phones. Uh So we would be able to see it. Right. But yeah, he stands up and he's like, so are you saying that like all of these corporations are all kind of like conspiratorially working together against the American people? And the Black Panther Party's like, yeah, <laughs> we, we, that is what we're saying. And he's like, that's patently ridiculous because the world is pure chaos, right? Mm-hmm. None of these people are are in cahoots with one another because they they can't do it. And right, so Stephen King has no interest in like, like the Black Panther Party is not literally saying that all these people are like on the phone with one another doing stuff, you know, in concert. Right. However, we do know historically that that was often happening. Right. right? Like our historical analysis of like 1945 to up through the 1980s has revealed that many of the time, especially when it came to suppressing uh, any kind of youth movement or revolutionary movement, that it often was a weird case of people in the government being on the horn with private industry or police agencies or things like that in order to get them to do things. You know, um, the the connection between, for example, the telecom uh, uh, conglomerates and the FBI was extremely tight Mm -hmm. because that's how they surveilled everyone, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, in radical movements. So, you know, Stephen King just can't believe that there might be a structure of violence that exists in a coherent way, even if the coherence is only just class interests here, right? Yeah, he can't. Um, He does not believe in ideology, right? He can't uh, imagine that. 
effects in the world might arise not through necessarily constant like uh connection and and um sort of conscious collaboration but that like on a on a vast scale right aggregate corporate action uh results in particular effects yeah right like that is just like that is a thing it is an idea he does not seem to be able to countenance as you say because his point here is him trying to say there is no point to the world right it is all chaos no one has a plan no one's like uh, uh guiding everything and that's the truth and the second you start thinking that like people might have plans then you're being paranoid then you're being conspiracist <laughs> then uh you're giving into groupthink or whatever also this is like my two and a half page digression in the middle of me trying to talk about invasion of the body snatchers let's get back to that right like i actually had a moment after this i was like so sort of discombobulated by by this anecdote that when he got back to talking about inv invasion of the body snatchers i was like holy hell yeah but the, you know this is just part of like steve's uh libertarian imagination you know we've talked about this several times right it's just like individuals ping-ponging atomically around in the world and there's no such thing as society or you know it's it, it's going to be really interesting to see stephen king navigate the 1980s from this perspective because in everything but name he's a thatcherite or a Reaganite, mm -hmm. right? Like, the world is just a bunch of agents running around, and sometimes emergent things come out of that, right? But there is no society. Mm -hmm. And if there is a society, it's just people who are bound together by the same societal pressure points, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, if... I, we'll see how that works out, right? Because if like the horrifying moment, we have to figure out. I think I think what this demands of us as readers of Stephen King is what are the people that what are the most horrifying things that can happen to people in Stephen King's universe? And the most horrifying things that can happen to people constitute what society is, because that is what we're all focused in on. Mm -hmm. And so we can kind of backward work with his own math here, right? We can always backward work what he thinks the social is by what the fixations are. And I think that's going to be very interesting <laughs> in the next 15 years of Stephen King's work. But I'll just lay that little thing in here and then we'll refer back to Dance Macabre several times to see what constitutes society. Yeah. But I, I, I'm going to hazard a guess here that the reason that Stephen King became one of the most uh, wealthy and popular artists of in the 1980s in the world uh, has a little bit to do with uh, how he honed in on the fears of the popular right wing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, that's, you know, kind of his his argument about the body snatchers is that at, ultimately, this isn't a story about McCarthyism or communism, right? This is a story about a pleasant town full of white people going to hell. Yeah. And that's why it's good, right? Because everyone wants to live in a pleasant town full of white people, and man, wouldn't we be sad if it went to hell? Yeah. <sighs> and you get a sense that, like, that's what... That's the yearning for, you know, you were talking about social decay earlier, right? Mm -hmm. The thing that decayed is like, I don't, you know, this like wide imaginary mm -hmm. of like the rural and suburban Maine. Mm -hmm. 
you know, I, I think that the, the social pressure points that are, if there are negative social pressure points, there have to be positive ones, right? There have to be things that are uh, utopian, mm -hmm. right? And I don't think Stephen King's utopia is a utopia for everyone. No. Um, I think it's a utopia for a very particular class and race of people. And I think, importantly, that's different than early Stephen King, I think. I don't think that's always been in the mix. I think he's always had race problems, very obviously. We've talked about it in almost every book. But I think that it is becoming much more pointed and much more understood as a politics here. Mm -hmm. um, whereas I think that maybe he was a little bit more of a liberal. Mm -hmm. You know, I wouldn't call him a liberal after reading this book. No, no. But just to cover a couple of other things that he talks about here, just in case you're interested uh, and you want to know, you know, where to zero in on. Uh, he talks a bit about uh, Ray Bradbury. Um, actually quite extensively. Mm -hmm. He does a reading of Something Wicked This Way Comes, which came up in, in our discussion of The Dead Zone. Mm -hmm. Another right-wing Yeah, author, I was going to say another, another extremely right-wing uh, uh, fantasist. Um, he calls Bradbury a great prose stylist, which is a thing that people very much say about Bradbury. Um, yeah, he, beautiful writer. Yeah, he also you know sort of critiques him for a be being a little bit saccharine or whatever, um, which you can do. Um, most of the time, he when he quotes, he's just like, damn, this is good. But to get back to the Ray Bradbury thing... People are going to come out of the woodwork to explain to me that uh, Ray Bradbury is not a conservative author uh, and wrote very many things that were liberatory, and that is absolutely true. Um, you should look at—if if you don't think that Ray Bradbury is a right-wing author, you should look at any of the interviews he gave after, like, 1985. Mm -hmm. um, but especially uh, certain claims he made about people of certain races and his uh, hatred of the PC police mm -hmm. um, and the way he articulated that claim. Uh, he even went so far as to re-articulate what Fahrenheit 451 yeah. was about, to say that it was not about totalitarian governments, but it was about the political left, and particularly uh, African Americans telling him what he could and could not say. Mm -hmm. So, um, took a real rightward swing uh, yeah. in the last 30, 40 years of his life. Yeah, uh... The other thing that I wanted to mention, actually, just very briefly, because I think this does, I, I think it bears mentioning, um... Mm -hmm. When we talk about when King uh, does these big, long uh, quotes, when he like quotes uh, a long thing from Ira Levin, then he's like, man, this is great. And that is true. That's great. The one author who he quotes at length and then says, this is bad, is Anne Rivers Siddons, who is his contemporary, who is a woman who primarily writes mainstream fiction and then wrote uh, a haunted house novel, a pretty good haunted house novel. I would say, called The House Next Door. And Stephen King goes through big chunks of the novel, and he's like, here's where her characterization is muddy. The prose is imprecise. Uh, and then, and then, and this is the other thing that you need to know about this. Stephen King has written most of these authors, right, directly. Like, he has written them letters, and he's like, hey, he's apparently like, hey, I'm writing a book, uh, and I'm going to talk about your novel, whatever. Could you give me your thoughts on it, right? So he is quoting personal correspondence from Ray Bradbury, from uh, uh, Jack Finney, from Peter Straub, from Ann River Siddons. And Ann River Siddons is talking about how much fun she had writing this book. It was a new kind of thing for her. It was a little challenge. Like, it's very convivial, and she's clearly excited to be kind of in this conversation. And then in the book itself, uh, King has, it is like, it was one of the things that made me so, like, I almost threw the book across the room. He is talking about the narrator of her novel. A first person narrator. It's a, a, a suburban, you know, it's a white suburban uh, woman in like 1980s Atlanta or like late 1970s, um, you know, sort of a yuppie type. Uh, and at one point early on in, in that 
book, she's sort of trying to introduce to the reader herself and her husband and kind of their social circle. Um, and she says something about how, like, uh, you know, she she's, like, near 40 or just over 40, uh, but, like, you know, young men still kind of look her way when she's walking down the street, right? She's trying to say, like, I am and maintaining myself, I look good, and I know that, and I feel good about it. And Stephen King quotes this and he says something like no woman would ever actually think about herself this way mm -hmm. like straight up like is telling us what he thinks uh would constitute writing a good woman to a woman writer jesus christ steve he gets it stephen king has written many young white attractive blonde women who were very into writers he gets it i don't understand what your criticism is michael and, and in fact, and in fact, I'm pretty sure that Siddons um, said like the uh, the character um, uh, says something about her jeans or her legs or something and how good they look. And like that is the thing that he constantly talks about when he introduces a hot woman character. That is how you know when Stephen King wants you to know that a, a, a woman character is hot is he mentions her legs like that's his thing. It is so clear. It's ugh. it's uh, hypocritical, right? You call it's ugh. I thought you were going to say not about legs, but about jeans. <laughs> and I was very curious if Stephen King's King was positioning himself as a jeans guy. Yes. Which, was, which would be much more interesting to me. Proto drill. Um, my God, this chapter is breaking me. Um, I need to get to this story. Uh, back to Ray Bradbury. So this is what I promised earlier, right? Michael reading this in like middle school or high school. And mm -hmm. I realize. Um, at least this, this is, uh, you know, I admire Stephen King. I want to be a horror writer when I grow up. And so in some ways, when I first approach this, uh, book, I am taking it as, is almost, um, you know, you know, words from on high, it's very much the way that King wants it to be taken. Yeah. So I'm trying to learn something, right? I want to be a horror author. What is a horror author? What do they do? Uh, and he gets to this chapter on Ray Bradbury, and this is where he decides to, like, swerve out, and he's like, in order for me to tell you about Ray Bradbury and something wicked this way comes, I need to tell you about Theodore Dreiser and Sherwood Anderson. Um, and the reason that these authors are all connected is that they're from the Midwest and blah, 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 blah. But then he has this line, he says, uh, he connects Dreiser and Bradbury by saying that, um, uh, they are both naturalists, but Bradbury turns to fantasy, whereas uh, Theodore Dreiser is all about sort of social critique. Here is the thing, Cameron. Here is the thing that Michael knew at age 13 that Stephen King didn't know in 1980 at age like he's like 33 or something. Mm -hmm. Ray Bradbury wasn't a naturalist. Naturalism <laughs> is realism. It's just straight up wrong. That's not how literary history works. Like, I was the kid in, you know, my English classes when they taught us, like, the big sort of, like, literary movements, like Gothicism and Romanticism and stuff. I loved that. I ate that up. So I, you know, one of my first kind of, like, ways of apprehending literature was about uh, learning uh, this kind of history and kind of the, the taxonomies that develop and, and how those work. And so I'm reading here as, you know, little teenage Michael. And he says, Ray Bradbury is a naturalist. And it's like, no, Zola is a naturalist. <laughs> what the hell are you talking about? Like, Ray Bradbury is writing about ghosts and rocket ships. That's just straight up wrong. It and is even, egregiously even, wrong. Even better than that, ghosts and rocket ships in the same story sometimes. Yes. Right? Like, 
<laughs> like as unnatural. The, he, literally, the man moves the House of Usher to Mars. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Look, Stephen King's just making shit up. Okay, <laughs> he's he's taking he's one of the the Shockmeister, you know, as they call him, as we know. Uh, the Shockmeister is just g- going off. Okay, I don't know what you want. You want accuracy from him? You want him to do any research? You fool, you buffoon, what are you doing? Yeah, okay. Well, I can't, little Michael with his lollipop in his mouth and his uh-huh. blue balloon running around in his short pants. Mm-hmm. Memorizing, I love naturalism. <laughs> yeah, memorizing the literary movements. He's just not ready for a six foot five man on cocaine <laughs> blowing pages out of his face. Like, he's just ready to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, other things that show up in this chapter, there's like a long discussion of Richard Matheson and the Incredible Shrinking Man. And of course, Matheson is hugely important to King and also like generally like a dude who knew how to write a really cool uh, short story where something horrible happened. Yeah. Uh, he talks he he has a very brief section on British horror where he writes mostly about Ramsey Campbell and um, uh, uh, James Herbert. Um which is interesting. He mentions Robert Aikman. Uh, and he re- he mentions him several times, but does not appear to have actually read any Robert Aikman, which I think is interesting because uh, I think Robert Aikman is an extremely good writer, <laughs> but Stephen King has nothing to say about him. And then there's a massive, massively long section on Harlan Ellison again. Mm-hmm. That's well, I think in the, interest of, uh, in the interest of time, and that's it, right? I mean, there's this like weird little like, bumper chapter at the end that doesn't matter Mm -hmm. where he completely reverts everything he said yeah the the last chapter is uh basically as i said like stephen king has uh put forth this idea that the horror writer is like the the every person's avenue to the dionysian aspect of our existence right we live in an uh an Apollonian world where we're subject to rules and restrictions and rationality, but we have the Dionysian that's always bubbling under the surface. And uh, at some point that those those forces, right, the the, the things that just want us to be, you know, school terrorists uh, again, right? Like this is this is how Stephen King is imagining psychology and the human, the things mm-hmm. that like the, the violence that we just constantly want to be doing or whatever, uh, those things all have to get routed into horror fiction. Um and so he says that, uh, you know, ultimately the the horror writer is a conservative instrument. Um, and then he's like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> Hold on. I'm not I don't think I'm a conservative. Yeah, I don't think I'm a conservative. Um, well, OK, uh, let me tell you how I wrote the stand. Uh, how I wrote the stand was uh, I got all of the ideas that I put together to make the stand and then I uh, killed the entire world, except for, you know, whatever percentage of people. And for me, this was great because uh, it was like a Dionysian excess that, like, wiped away all the problems, right? He he's talks about how once, once he imagines, like, what happens when a flu takes out 99% of humanity? He's like, ah, no more gash shortages, right? Um, <laughs> Finally. <laughs> right? Uh, pollution stops. Uh, uh, you know, nature gets to heal. Um, <laughs> That's what I was going to Nature is healing. In the stand, <laughs> nature is healing. And so he's like, well, 
uh, you know, that's actually like sort of uh, a positive and good, right? There's kind of a moral lesson there where we can be like, oh, what if people were less destructive to the world? So what if instead of being conservative, uh, the horror writer was like the werewolf who is, you know, can look uh, very ordered uh, and, and rational and conservative, but is actually secretly an agent of chaos who is bringing kind of like change and innovation. And what if that's what I I am actually <laughs> is someone who seems conservative, but is actually, uh, uh, you know, um, making interventions in, in people's, uh, I don't know, history or something. Uh, and that, that's how he kind of tries to work around, um, the, the entire political bent of, of this book. Right. And then he sort of tops it off with like, maybe really what happens is that, uh, horror writers help us imagine that we're kids again and we can just be like oh what if there is a monster under the bed great mm -hmm. excellent thanks steve mm -hmm. uh well you know we normally have segments here but we're a little bit long on time and none of them are particularly uh uh relevant given that this is not a fiction novel <laughs> yeah yeah none of this none of this quite clicks um as we move forward, we'll probably call back to Dan's Macabre when we're reading, like, uh, the works of fiction that seem to be clearly building off of ideas that first get expressed here. Um, yeah. But, like, you know, there's there's not a lot of there's no Uncle Stevie's mixtape. He's not really talking about music. He does tell us, like, what song he was listening to when he got to first base for the first time. It was Help Me Rhonda by the Beach Boys. Now I have to remember that and have to know that. And now you do, too. Mm hmm. You're welcome. Of course, uh, right now, this very moment, as I've said a couple times, you can go to our Patreon, rangetouch.com. No, well, you can go to rangetouch.com to get there, but <laughs> patreon.com slash rangetouch. Uh, the link is also down in the description below this episode. You can go over there and you can listen to us talk uh, about Stephen King's Cat's Eye, um, an anthology film that Stephen King wrote. Uh, next time, uh, we'll be back into the, into the fiction. We will be talking about the third book that Stephen King published in 1981, uh, Cujo. Which is, yeah, yeah famously uh, the book that King will later admit to not remembering writing because he was doing so much cocaine. So, again, like we're not sort of mentioning that just to like mock uh, uh, King's problems like this is this is having an effect on his output and it is clearly there. Yeah, and I'm I'm actually because Stephen King, you know, was doing a lot of cocaine, but it was also doing a lot of drugs in a broad, broad spectrum sense. And I think that this might have been. Not just cocaine, too. Well, we will go find the anecdote where he talks about that. I think that's in On Writing. I'll mm -hmm. go find the, the thing, and we'll we'll read it. But, yeah, uh, due to a combination of various drugs and alcohol, he does not remember uh, writing Cujo. So uh, next time on the bonus odes, we'll be talking about the Cujo film. And then uh, even more next time after that, we will um, be uh, – well, uh, no, I guess – well, I don't know what's after – what's after Cujo? Uh, after Cujo, we're back to Bachman. It's The Running Man. Ooh, and then we'll be talking about The Running Man, mm -hmm. which is a rare double banger of good book and good movie. Well, that's it, folks. Uh, Cameron's given you all the information you need going forward, and we will see you next month when we meet back here to discuss Just King things. Uh, but I don't know. Why, why even after after this uh, odyssey of, of, of a book, why would we come back? What is our driving motivation? Tell me, Cameron. Well, you know, Michael, our key motivation here uh, and the reason that we do what we do 
is because we got to do it for Steve. And we got to do it for the world. <laughs> <laughs>